You're listening to the Jefferson Exchange. I'm Eric Newman. Thanks for joining us. The JX starts today with the debrief, where JPR reporters discuss the stories they've been covering this week, including Josephine County relaxing fire protection requirements and a potential lawsuit against the city of Medford from a harm reduction group. I'm here with reporters Roman Battaglia and Justin Higginbottom. Good morning. Hello. Good morning. Here we are again. Um, Oregon lawmakers will convene in Salem on Monday. Uh, We're going to start with a conversation I had yesterday afternoon with OPB politics reporter Lauren Dake about what lawmakers are focusing on during the upcoming short legislative session. Hello, Lauren. Hi, Eric. So housing issues once again seem likely to dominate the legislative session. What's being proposed this time? The governor is requesting $500 million in state funds, which is a big budget ask in a short 35-day legislative session, but she believes it's crucial to increasing the state's housing stock and to reaching the aggressive housing goals that she's already set out. So she wants that money to help pay for land, um, expanding utility services and infrastructure, to pave the way for new developments and homes themselves. She also wants to set up a new state agency, a housing accountability and production office. And she sees that as a way to help developers and local governments navigate state housing laws and basically clear up any bureaucratic hurdles that might slow down development. One part of the bill that is likely to generate some pushback is it would allow cities outside of the Portland metro area to unilaterally pull more than 100 acres of land into the urban growth boundary to develop that land. And bringing new land into the UGB is often lengthy and sometimes quite litigious of a process. So she's giving these jurisdictions an opportunity to bypass all of that, which a lot of conservation groups don't really love. Hmm. Um, okay, I'm sure we'll hear more on that. Um, Governor Tina Kotek was initially opposed to overhauling Measure 110 and recriminalizing drug offenses, but she seems to have had a change of heart on that. Yes, the governor recently signaled she's willing to sign a bill that would make possessing small amounts of drugs a criminal offense in Oregon once again. And and that is new for her. While she was running for governor on the campaign trail, she really stuck to messaging saying that Measure 110 needed more time to get up and running before it was rolled back. But it does seem clear that this legislative session, Democrats are going to push for recriminalizing possession of small amounts of illicit drugs once again. The governor, though, also says she doesn't think that people should just solely focus on this recriminalization aspect of Measure 110. She also wants the legislation that's being proposed to address addiction services, improve those, and she just sees this recriminalization aspect as a small sliver of a much broader conversation. Hmm. Um, Everything we've talked about uh, with this is contingent on Republicans staying in the building and not staging another walkout and derailing the entire session like they have in the past. Are there any concerns that that could happen again? Well, the Oregon Supreme Court just ruled that Oregon Senate Republicans who did participate in that walkout, the state's longest legislative walkout, will be blocked from running for re-election. So eight Republican lawmakers had said that they plan to seek re-election. Um, and, I, you know, 
it remains to be seen, but certainly the latest decision could have a bearing on how the short session plays out. Senate Majority Leader Tim Knope, he's a Republican from Bend who led the walkout, said last week that Republicans won't have a really have a reason to show up for work unless they feel like they can have a positive impact on the coming session. So yes, the ruling could shift the dynamics. Republicans could presumably feel like they have little to lose if they want to walk out again in an attempt to block Democratic priorities. Hmm. Okay. Uh, thanks so much, Lauren. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Eric. Okay, we're next going to turn to Roman. Uh, Roman, this week you reported on the shutoff of the famous Lithia Water drinking fountains in downtown Ashland. Tell us about these fountains and why they were shut off this week or yeah. recently. <laughs> uh, so these aren't your typical drinking fountains. Um, I don't think Justin ever had a chance to taste them because they've been shut off since he's been here, um, but they basically taste like rotten eggs. They're full of all these like minerals. This Lithia Water was famous a long time ago. Um, but the Oregon Health Authority apparently met with Ashland back in October um, to talk about these fountains, and they saw some tests the city had done, and they found high levels of boron, manganese, sodium, and barium, which are above the recommended health levels. And so the OHA basically said if the city plans to operate this as a public water supply, it needs to meet the same drinking water standards like the water that comes out of your tap. Um, but you know, Michael Morrison from Ashland Public Works told me as recently as 2016, um, OHA had said they didn't really care about the lithia fountain. It just wasn't considered anything. They just, the rules have changed over the years. And when the fountain was first put on the plaza, there weren't really rules regarding water. And then over the years, the rules have changed and they, like most things, get a little more strict over time. Uh, so I don't know what prompted it, but they've decided to look closer at our lithia fountain. Yeah, so right now they've basically shut off the fountain until they've figured out what they're going to do about it. Okay, so it's a little unique that we're talking about drinking fountains mm -hmm. in the news. Um, can you tell us a little bit about why these drinking fountains are so significant to Ashland's history? Yeah, I mean, first, lithia water, naturally occurring lithia water is pretty rare. I think um, another place that it might be found uh, is Saratoga Springs, New York which is named after the springs there. But um, these fountains were built in 1927. Mm -hmm. um, the residents had found these mineral springs in the early 1900s. And people had, back then, people were kind of crazy about health spas and mineral waters and like health tonics and things. And so they wanted to build a health spa in the city of Ashland. So they approved a bond in 1914 to build Lithia Park, which we have now, and they pumped the water from these springs all the way over her. The springs are near the Ashland airport. They're pretty far away. So they pumped the water in. Um, Morrison told me it was even pumped into some stores in Ashland. It was pumped to other fountains. But, you know, the plan kind of fizzled out because the pipes that they used at the time would get clogged really easily by all these mineral buildup. But about a decade later after that, the interest in this water kind of resurged and the city built these drinking fountains to provide the water to the public. So that was kind of the what, what they were able to get done by not being able to build a health spa. And, you know, some people claim it has healing properties because of these minerals and stuff, and so that's why it's sort of played a big role in the history of the city. A lot of things in Ashland are named after Lithia, mm -hmm. which is after the Lithia Water. Lithia Park, Lithia Motors, Ashland Springs Hotel used to be called the Lithia Springs Hotel. So, you know, it has a lot of – it plays a big part in Ashland's history. Sure. And so if these fountains have been around for so long, why is OHA now deciding that they should crack down on 
having this water drinkable. Yeah, according to Michael from the city's public works department, they've essentially, you know, turned a blind eye in the past, like we talked about. We I didn't really get a clear answer from OHA, but I did hear yesterday night from Jonathan Modi from OHA that, you know, one possibility is that it was previously determined not to be a public water source because OHA didn't have the information on who was using it. Hmm. Um, Morrison also suspects that it could be a change in staff that kind of interprets the rules differently and what can be recognized. Um, You know, Modi said they recognize the value of this fountain and want to work on a solution, but, you know, the solutions they've kind of provided so far would sort of ruin the whole point of what makes these lithia water fountains lithia water fountains. Mm-hmm. So what are the possible solutions? Yeah, a couple of solutions they told me could be installing a treatment system to filter out the contaminants, which are the things that make lithia water taste the way it does, um, changing where the water is sourced from, which would mean not coming from the lithia springs or even removing the fixtures altogether and preventing people from drinking out of it, just having like a regular fountain, I guess. Um, but obviously those solutions would mean people could no longer taste this lithia water. It's now very commonly a tourist trap. You know, you trick your friends who come to visit in Ashland to taste the lithia water because it tastes like rotten eggs and mm-hmm. stuff. So, you know, and it sounds like those would be really expensive, according to Morrison. Um You know, I asked OHA and they said they're currently looking for more information on who actually uses this fountain. These contaminants may not apply to this type of water system, depending on the population served. Oregon Health Authority has not heard back from the city of Ashland regarding the population served. So the water system type cannot be determined yet. Yeah, so basically he said they don't really have information on who uses this water, especially regularly. Um, I talked to one person in the downtown plaza who said they do know people who fill up jugs of water from this. Um, Hmm. I'm not really sure who could stand the taste, but some people do. You know, they think they have healing properties. They're going to drink this water. Um, Morrison had said he doesn't really know of that many people who drink it regularly. But one possibility is if they determine that this is not like a regular use public water source, it could still be regulated as a water source and not have to meet those contaminant requirements. Um, You know, ideally, Morrison and the city would like things to just return to the status quo back to the way they are. Mm -hmm. Okay. So um, what's the city planning to do next? What's what's happening next? Yeah, right now, um, the city said they might have to do some studies to kind of figure out who's actually using this fountain. We don't really know who's used this fountain, what the health effects are. Morrison told me that they don't really have any documented examples of people getting sick from drinking this water, but they might just not have been reported. And so trying to figure out who uses this fountain, what the possible solutions are looking like. And, you know, they're going to continue to talk with OHA to figure out a solution. But right now, that means these fountains are shut off, unfortunately. Okay. Thanks, Roman. Justin, we're going to turn to you next. Um, You've been reporting on uh, Measure 110 and locally a group in Jackson County that is known... um, colorfully as Stab and Wagon. Um, they provide what's known as harm reduction services. Uh, they got funding through Measure 110. Uh, this week, you had a story about a possible lawsuit by that group against the city of Medford. Um, can you tell us a little bit about this organization? Yeah, so Stab and Wagon, they're, they're based in Medford, and they provide harm reduction supplies and services to drug users. So that means they basically give out Narcan, which is a popular brand of overdose medication, um, clean syringes, you know, things to help prevent drug users from dying or spreading disease. Um, Measure 110, which decriminalized hard drugs in Oregon, also funded groups like Stab and Wagon, and they've received nearly $600,000 from that. Um, It gave them money for their van, which they drive around Medford and park at spots where they hand out supplies. 
Right. And very controversial kind of approach. Uh, well, here locally, at least. And um, yeah, their goal being just to essentially keep people alive if they're uh, in the throes of addiction. Uh, not just that approach is controversial, but they're also controversial as a group here in Medford. Can you just kind of run through some of the reasons for those controversies? Yeah. So the executive director, Melissa Jones, um, and a former employee have had run-ins with Medford police before. Uh, Jones was arrested for trespassing in a city park while she was offering services to the homeless. Um, And she and a former colleague also were arrested when they allegedly interfered with officers at a free HIV testing event in Medford. The police were there to detain a runaway. um, And they were actually banned from downtown Medford for 90 days because of that. Um, you know, Stab and Wagon, they're known as being pretty critical of police. They don't really hide that fact. They have a policy of not working with law enforcement. Um, and some Medford city officials have also not been happy with funding for Stab and Wagon. Uh, besides the Measure 110 funding, the Oregon Health Authority gave the group $1.5 million for a peer respite center. That's like a short-term residential program. And public records show emails where officials discussed fighting that grant. Um, This was reported in the Rogue Valley Times. Uh, Officials were worried basically that the center would allow open drug use, but Jones uh, with Stab and Wagon denies that. Okay. Um, So Stab and Wagon and the city haven't had the best relationship. Um, Now the group may sue Medford. Can you tell us about this potential lawsuit? Yes, Stabenwagen filed what's called a tort claim notice against Medford City and the Medford Police Department. And that says that they plan to sue for damages in the future, filing this notice is a a legal requirement. Um, And they accuse the city and police of harassment and constitutional rights violations, among some other charges. Basically, they they say the city's been illegally targeting them, and that's harmed their nonprofit financially um, and also its workers. Um, In the notice, they say the city hired an analyst to monitor them and use their lobbyists to fight against that OHA grant which is sort of strange because cities usually don't fight against getting money for services. Right. Um, How has the city responded to this kind of um, first step in a potential lawsuit? Well, I got a statement from the city's communication manager, and that said that it's not yet a lawsuit, so they won't really be commenting on it. Um, Besides, you know, she said that that criminal case against Jones for her arrest at the city park is ongoing. They can't comment on that either. Um, And Jones's colleague pled no contest after her arrest for uh, interfering with police at that HIV testing event. Um, And then the statement also says the city generally disagrees with how Stabenwagen's attorney described events in in the notice. Um, So right now we're just waiting for the actual lawsuit to see where things go. Okay, great. Thanks so much, Justin. That's going to do it for the debrief. Uh, Thanks for listening. You can reach the newsroom with comments about our coverage and suggestions for things that we should cover in the future through our news tip line. You can find that on our website at ijpr.org. Just a quick reminder that the 41st annual JPR wine tasting is just a few weeks away. That's uh, the time to make plans to attend our biggest event of the year. It's on Friday, February 19th, uh, February 9th, excuse me, from 6 to 9 at Ashland Hills Hotel and Suites in Ashland. Um, You can find the debrief and more shows on our website at jeffexchange.org, or you can subscribe on Apple, Spotify, and all the other platforms. 